0: Good evening, you are listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Joining me today for the first time in too long a time since our uh, Tahoe vacation, uh, freelance writer Julian Murdoch. Julian, welcome back. It's only been like three weeks, but it feels like forever. It really does. (laughs) Uh, We also welcome for the first time, see now we have this whole conversation about titles and all I can think of is Mr. Manchu. (laughs) Uh, So we welcome the man who puts the foo in the blue Manchu uh john shea john welcome to the show hi everyone thanks great to be on the show so john uh we've been looking forward to getting you on the show here to talk about uh your game card hunter uh which you can play for free online and you know i think a great place to start would just be to talk about a little bit what brought you to uh, what brought you to Card Hunter? Where this game sort of comes from? Uh, and I know your background is with I- Irrational, uh, so maybe you could talk a little bit about the journey that got you from Rational to uh, Blue Manchu and then gave us Card Hunter. Sure.
1: Well, it's kind of a long, um, slightly crazy journey. Uh, of course, Irrational Games was um, this you know the focus of, of my work and my life for for a very long time, and um, uh, after we sold the company to 2K um, a sale which finished in 2005 uh, the genesis of card hunter where did card hunter come from uh it's a it's a, been kind of a long strange journey um card hunter's really i guess is a um, it might be in a, to describe it as a vanity project probably wouldn't be unfair but it's i, I guess it's more of a um Something that I always wanted to do. I worked for many years at Irrational Games, and we mostly made games for other people. And I was very happy to work on those games. I enjoyed working on immersive first-person shooters, but I really like strategy games, and I always wanted to work on a strategy game. And after we sold Irrational Games to 2K, uh, I, I continued to work for 2K for several years, and we worked on Bioshock. And uh, I've had an opportunity to leave and to to fund my own projects after that. And what I really wanted to do was work on a strategy game, even though I knew very little about them. I had uh, a lot of exposure to them as a player, but I'd never designed a strategy game. I'd never worked on a strategy game. The closest I'd ever come was Freedom Force, which was a tactical RPG, superhero RPG that we did. Early on, in Irrationals.
2: Oh, that's one of our favorites. We've uh, we've done a show on that. Yeah, we had we had Ken on to talk about that for a while, didn't we?
1: Well, well, Ken and
2: I. I mean, Ken and I both love that
1: game. We love that property. Um, you know, it was the first game that we did when I left Irrationals US office and I came out to Australia and set up our studio in Canberra. So it's sort of it's it has a special place in, in my heart, and I know it does in Ken's too because. He loves the characters in the universe that that he and um rob the concept artist created for that franchise so that that was kind of a strategy game but it was a real-time um 3d simulated game so it was actually sort of much closer to to the, the other kinds of things we did at irrational than card hunter is card Hunter is really a a very very new kind of thing for me so I guess, you know, part of the appeal of being an indie developer is that you get to learn a lot. You you have to do everything. Uh, and in this case, most of those things that I'm doing, or almost all of them, are, are things that I haven't actually done before. You know, whether it's working on a turn-based game, a card game, a, a sort of a hybrid board game, a, an online game, a free-to-play game. they're all They're all things that
2: are really new to me. So that's very exciting as a developer. And were you uh, – I'm going to guess the answer has to be yes, but I'm assuming you were a fan of similar types of games in the genre, at least sort of the pieces, right? I mean, we should probably – for our audience that hasn't played Card Hunter yet, uh, which there's no reason not to since it's free to play – we should describe a little bit what it is. It sort of mixes this sort of tactical miniatures war game that you play, you know, on a grid with little characters that you move around and they're bad guys that you're fighting with um, a collectible card game system where the way you get cards into your deck, which determine what your tactical minis can do um, is by effectively collecting loot. So you get a pair of boots and it will give you a certain movement abilities and maybe some other abilities. You get certain swords, they give you certain combat cards that go with them. And so it, for me, it strikes this great balance of being an interesting tactical game when you're on the field with just enough randomness so that you're not always feeling like you're completely in control, Uh, but also scratching that almost Diablo-esque loot itch where you want to do just one more combat because maybe you'll get a drop that really uh, gets one of your characters in position. So it's kind of a really fun mixture of those. I'm going to guess that you're a fan of all of those little genres I just touched on independently. Yes, I am. Yes, I've And,
1: and I love all of those kind of games, and this is, I think, this is a, kind of a common theme to a lot of the games we did at, at Irrational, is that we, we we tried to mix together genres perhaps in ways that hadn't been done up, at, up to that point. And so, you know, certainly if you look at System Shock 2, we were tasked with developing a first-person shooter um, and we we knew that we had a lot of constraints on us that that would have made it difficult for us to make a straight-up shooter that was, you know, at at, at a competitive level. So instead of sort of trying to compete with other people head-on at things they were doing very well, we thought it would be interesting to uh, try to shift genres a little bit. And, And in that particular case, you know, I think the idea was to combine RPGs with shooters you know which is something that's very common now but at the time it was uh, you know a little a fairly fresh step I think in terms of mixing things up so card hunter is is probably the ultimate expression of that idea you know it's mixing up as you said card games board games role-playing games um, paper and pencil and computerized RPGs so it's you know I, I like all of those things and you know it, I kind of it's really just sort of putting them all in a pot and stirring them around and hoping that what comes out is um you know fun for the same reasons those things are fun, but also maybe that sort of creates some new synergies i think and and um freshens up some of those genres or is at least a different look at them
2: and, and yeah, did... you know, go ahead
0: well, I was just going to say this is going to sound kind of mean, uh but <laughs> oh no, not to, not to john for for me, playing card hunter is actually like all the best parts and all the potential of D&D 4th edition without actually ruining a great pen and paper role-playing system.
2: Right. Well, it has that certain action quality to it, which is really it is fun and exciting, but you still get all the tropes of D&D. I mean, we should, we'll have to dig into the theme here a little bit. The slash yeah. side of d and
1: I have to admit. You know, it's not... It, it kind of has... I think some people are, you know, who are expecting it to be... Like, it presents, like, an actual... Um, you know, tabletop role-playing game in many ways, but of course it it isn't in the sense that there's no real role-playing in it. It's it's the action numbers combat side of of RPGs, which is of course what most computer RPGs are, are largely about. Um, but then it kind of has this fiction that you're you're playing a a real role-playing game. Um, you know, with a with a game master.
2: I, I have to say that's been some of the 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 most surprising part to me is that um, the the fiction, as you call it, is that the you know you're literally playing at a tabletop at this friend Gary's house, who's the dungeon master, uh, who's sort of I, I think I have this right has sort of stolen the table from his brother uh, to to run the game. Yeah,
1: yeah, he's he's borrowed his older brother's um, role playing game set and kind of launched into it with you because he's very excited to to play, but he doesn't really know how to play. He's learned from his elder brother, Melvin. And, of course, it it borrows a little from my childhood. When I was first exposed to to Dungeons & Dragons, um, it was because my brother had gone to high school, and at high school somebody had bought first edition Dungeons & Dragons, and my brother... Had copied out the rules, some of the rules by hand, <laughs> brought them home for the holidays, showed me how to play. I had then transcribed by hand some of the rules that he had copied out by hand. Um, so you know, I was left with this very kind of bastardised version of D and D that probably bore very, very little, little resemblance to even you know what what had been developed by that stage, which was pretty crude with the first edition. I think you know, there were, I had like three monster types. Um and um you know, the and the concept of drawing the, the, the dungeon on graph paper and that was about it. So <laughs> yeah, Gary's Gary's sort of in that position and Melvin is, you know, constantly berating him for his it's lack of knowledge of the game
2: but I've been surprised at how um, I you know I, I I was you were nice enough to have me in the beta for a while and a lot of that that sort of fluff if you will and I hesitate to call it that was not really as prevalent as it is now um, and it's it I have to say it's not only is it actually funny which is genuinely rare I mean very few game writing situations actually make you laugh there's some actually funny funny parts of this um, and, and at the same time, it uses this shtick of, you know, every time you go on in a little adventure, it's as if you are opening up, like visually opening up an old second edition module complete with the way the graph paper looks and where the coffee stains are and how the paper wears and the font choices and the art style. It all matches, you know, the sort of deliberately campy and not very good line drawing art style from all of those second edition D&D books. Um, and it just seems to keep going on. I played quite a bit of this game and it just goes on and on and on how how did you decide to invest so much time and effort into the sort of kipple in the corners of this game because none of that obviously impacts your experience of playing the mechanics of the game
1: yeah but i, I you know as you say i think it does impact your overall experience of the game which so, so it is really important and it's it, it's true that it's it's definitely something that we've added as we went went along like when we sat down and conceived the game it didn't start from that. That was something that we kind of uh, figured out was a nice way to round out or flesh out the game. I think as we developed, and i you know, I'm, I'm really glad you guys think it, it is actually funny. It, it's not. Um, I guess we didn't write it as a comedy. You know, no, we didn't sit down. We didn't sit down and say, you know, let's let's poke fun at, at Dungeons and Dragons and and the genre of fantasy role playing games. Uh, because we, you know, like I said, we that's in our part in our shared past all the people on the development team have those kind of experiences and we look back on them very fondly and we really love that stuff um so this was kind of you know this project gave us an opportunity to kind of go through our bookcases and dig out those old modules and you know a lot of the time when we looked at them we were i mean we spent a lot of time laughing and we were kind of often quite shocked by <laughs> the quality of the uh, artwork and and some of the um uh, some of the narrative that we saw in there, you know, because we, we had these memories from when we were, whatever, 12, 14, 15 playing these games. And of course, at the time, being very impressed by, by all of this material. And it was very impressive, of course, to have, you know, summoned all this stuff out, out of thin air to have created it. Um, but looking back on it, it seems very sort of crude and, um, you know, some of it is, is, um, Unintentionally humorous to look at now, so we've spent a lot of time laughing ourselves. But we we never set out to mock it or r- ridicule it. We always just sort of um, it's it's all created from a point of view of, of love for that material, and I, I think that that usually works better than 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 if you sort of you know have have chosen it as, as a subject to make fun of. Um, it's a very fine line, you know, because at the same time we're very conscious that we don't take it seriously. I think one of the things I, I like about the the, um, the conceit of the game is that it doesn't take the fantasy storyline particularly seriously. It doesn't ask you to kind of invest in the idea that the world is actually under danger, from is in threat from an evil necron.
2: Right well I mean you call it, you call it, you call it the land card huntria right I mean it's <laughs> right I mean I
1: think we may have heard a little on
2: the a little
1: on the side of um not investing enough in the, in that kind of fantasy in in the actual fantasy adventure that you're playing through it's it's a it's a little disjointed which again kind of reflects uh I guess kind of what might happen if you went out and bought a bunch of D&D modules and you know try to string them together because they don't always you know, cohere in a narrative sense.
0: Well, exactly. And, and I love that so much actually is that, you know, it, it's, it's, it's an important insight, I think to be aware of that line between being lovingly teasing of a certain sort of gaming and then mocking it. Cause I think if you've gone, if you go on, sort of the mockery, you know, do it, do a, do a parody of, um, of, of games like this. Well, for one thing, they were almost parodies of themselves. And I think that's why card Hunter ultimately works. <laughs> they said they, they,
1: they do a lot of the work for you in that sense.
0: Yeah, I mean, like I, I, I was cracking up actually in the first uh, module where you run into an ooze, uh, because you know I, I want to say Gary at that point is talking about how he's been reading the, uh, the the monster manual basically, and sure enough, lo and be lo and behold, a moment later, here comes your first group of oozes. Uh, you know, in a dungeon, and I think we've all been in that. We've all been in that in that D and D group where it's like, "Oh great, like dude's just been reading some uh, monstrous manual stuff, and here we go. Here, here, here come the oozes."
1: <laughs> yeah, in a variety of different colors, all of which have been carefully chosen to screw with you in a way that you couldn't possibly prepare for or expect. <laughs> Say right. goodbye to your magic armor because you've been you've been hit by whatever flavor of ooze has been looked up in the monster manual right yeah so that that's there's a there's a lot of um there's there, there are a lot of interesting ideas in those in those early role playing game books that i i think were um you know some of which haven't haven't survived in the modern fantasy role playing like the you know the instant kill monsters and cursed treasure and so on it was a very kind of Combative kind of nature to to a lot of the rules.
2: Yeah, well, I'm the old which
1: we thought was kind of funny.
2: In in the old D and D, like the dungeon master wanted to win. <laughs> you know, I mean that's the old Tomb of Horrors thing, right? It's just like how miserable can you actually make your party? Right, exactly. So that and that's kind
1: of um, I mean part of the story is that is that the 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 two um, main characters who you're initially playing with. There's a third game master comes in later in the story but it uh, are sort of represent two different approaches to role playing i mean gary's very gary doesn't know a lot about about role playing but he his, his primary aim is is to have fun i mean and he's often sort of swayed by by you know whatever he's encountering in the rule books but uh, Melvin is very much on. Who's his older brother? Is very much on on that front. He's the he the lesson he's kind of taken away is that, is it's the game master's job to to set some horrible challenges and, and to punish the players if they if they're not performing well enough. So he sort of um, you know if, if if you played a bunch of tabletop role playing, you probably encountered somebody like that.
0: Yeah, I think in the as we were preparing for the show, uh, he wasn't able to be here, but our regular panelist, Bruce Garrick, uh, did say that he was not a particular fan of the, the nerd chic approach you've taken here. But I, I would say for me, I think it's resonated because for me, I feel like I've known, and probably, if I'm being honest, I've been both Melvin and Gary at some point, you know, where I like. I love the way Gary constructs his adventures from that perspective of just a guy who's kind of stolen the source material for this game and is coming up with ideas as he encounters the stuff for the very first time. And then later you turn to Melvin and you're about like, here's how I run a high quality game. And it was fun, sort of being brought back to both of those stages in my hobby life via Card Hunter.
1: Yeah, and I, I think, um, you know, some people. I think we are walking a very fine line there, and some people um, play the game and get kind of upset because they feel like we are poking fun. At those characters um, and and you know reinforcing stereotype and a, and let's be honest it is a pretty kind of you know it's a pretty crude stereotype that people who play role-playing games are socially inept and you know so on and so on and it, 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 it wasn't our intention to do that um, I, I can certainly and, and I can certainly see why some people might take offense if they think that, that that's our intention Um, I mean, we are telling a fairly broad story. It's not uh, intended to be an incredibly nuanced examination of...
2: (laughs) The human experience. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, we should, uh, we should not oversell this, right? This is all delivered in, uh, you know, single, single sentences from the characters before, after, or during uh, the missions. It's not like you're waiting through the cutscenes or anything that you would want to skip. It's literally just like loading screen level uh, text and stuff. But, but it's surprisingly, it's surprisingly influential on what's going on.
1: Yeah, it tries to. I mean, it's prime. It, I think more than anything else, it tries to stay out of the way. You know, I think if you, um, the worst thing a story, a game story, can do is interject itself in a very heavy-handed way and and get in the way of your experience of the game. So, that's his kind of number one goal. <laughs> and number two is to is to entertain and provide some context for 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 the um you know for the the pretty meaty gameplay that this game's basically mostly about.
0: Right. When it comes to that gameplay itself, uh, I know this is one of Julian's favorite types of game: uh, the deck builder. Uh, anytime you introduce deck building into a game, uh, Julian is like, "I'm all there." Alive. A Few
2: acres of snow. Sign me up. Yeah. What?
0: What I really, uh, what I really enjoy slash curse about this game is that. Card Hunter is, is, is very much about not having the right thing in your hand at the right time. Maybe maybe I'm just kicking myself because I chose a dwarf fighter whose default movement is basically a sluggish walk across. He basically saunters across the battlefield. You, you need new boots, that. my friend. I really do. But what, what I enjoy about this is all the items come attached with cards. That's kind of how, you're, that's how you build your deck is you kit out your RPG character, And each piece of kit has a group of cards that are associated with it. And what I enjoy about Card Hunter is that while there's usually, like, a cool thing on each worthwhile item that's, you know, once you get beyond sort of the, uh, you know, like, the vendor trash, I guess you'd call it. Once you get beyond that, there's usually a cool thing on each item. But then there's two or three things that may help you, may not. But I enjoy how often... They hurt you, yeah. Yeah, but I enjoy how often this game leaves me feeling like I am kind of screwed uh, <laughs> in, in a way that even 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 if you were to compare it to like the memoir forty four uh, you know command and color system, uh, I don't think even that leaves me as wistful as you know oh everything would be so different if I just had this other movement card. Uh, the way card hunter leaves me feeling regretful that yeah I just I have everything I need to kick some ass except the one card that make everything work. Right.
1: Yeah, well, right. uh, so I don't actually think that's necessarily to do with a deck-building game, to say. I mean, it's often, I guess, kind of associated with that. I would say that kind of feeling comes from just playing a card game, you know, whether or not you're building the deck, um, I, and and I, I think that's one of the things I personally really enjoy about card games. So if you, you know, if you compare c- the way Card Hunter is to what it might be if it wasn't a card-based game, if it was just a, you know, a more straightforward... Dice rolling tactical, or something, right. Well, like a tactical combat game, you know where, for example, your fighter has a, a bunch of different attacks and your wizard has a bunch of different spells, but every turn they, they get them recharged uh, and can do the same thing. In Card Hunter, what I enjoy is that every turn you have a different set of choices. And sometimes, as you say, those choices are pretty bad. I mean, it is actually possible in Card Hunter for you to draw nothing but move cards. And so obviously in that round, you're not going to be dealing a lot of damage. Uh, all you can do is pr- often try to stay alive. And some people, I think, don't like that um, because it, maybe it seems unrealistic or it's just, it is just frustrating to get screwed by the random number generator that way uh, or the shuffler. But uh, I personally find that that um introduces more variety so for example if you you know if you replay the same battle in card hunter it's going to play out very differently every time whereas if you you know it wasn't a card based game you might you know the same battle is probably pretty boring if you play it more than once
2: right so i've always
1: liked that kind of that fishing aspect to to card drawing games
2: yeah, and in that regard, you know, you're pulling in a lot of the best parts of games like Magic, right, where you know you've got the one or two cards in your deck that are the I win card, uh, and it's just a question of whether you ever get it out, right? So that that, that I definitely think is, is definitely satisfying, but you also bring in, you know, all the, the, the tropes of a tactical game where you've got uh you know movement that you have to worry about you've got terrain effects you have to worry about so you know and and those things do change from map to map but they they all take place on a fairly limited scale um and in fact i was going to ask you about that because the scale is fairly limited here we're not talking about sort of grand battles i think the biggest battle i've played has been you know my three guys versus maybe eight or nine other minis um it seems like such a natural for a mobile game like on the ipad which is you know we spend a fair amount of time on this show which is a hardcore strategy podcast talking iPad games um, is that uh, something that's in development something that you looked at and decided to wait on um, it's actively in development uh, it's and it's the only reason it's not done yet is because
1: we're such a small team and we we are constantly trying to juggle priorities so for example I just yesterday drew up a list of all the things that we could be doing next and, and, and we have to pick which ones they are and there's, a, there's about 20 or 30 things on that list and that's that's one of them and it's very high up on the list. Um, it's actually um, it's it it operates at the moment. We have a tablet build of the game. Um, because the, the game's a flash game, it can be there's a, a a way to create an air application which will run on a tablet. And we have that up and running. We just haven't done the work to relay out the UI and, and figure out how you know, we have a lot of mouse over Stuff in the game at the moment, which, right, which is, would be
2: tricky. Yeah,
1: yeah, that always I think the hardest thing to do when you're converting from a PC game to a ta- to a tablet game, and so we want to get that right. You know, we don't don't want to just push out a build just because it runs on tablet. Um, I, I don't think I think the game is going to have trouble <laughs> squeezing onto a phone screen, even though phones are getting quite large now. <laughs> um, you know, it's still it's a pretty it's a pretty complex game. There's a lot of little detail in it. I think it's a great game for a tablet and I really want to play it on tablet because I spend a lot of time playing tablet games now and everybody who plays the game usually asks whether it's going to be on tablet. Um, so you certainly want to get it there. Um, and I think, you know, my favorite kind of tablet games are turn-based games. I don't really like action games. I mean, am not a huge action game fan in general, but I, don't like playing them at all on on that sort of device. So I think it's a really good fit, genre-wise. And I I think the mouse-over stuff is is not too bad because most of the cards have, you know, the rules written on them with keywords, and it's nice to be able to mouse over the keywords and see what they do, but it's not sort of something you have to do all the time. Once you know what they mean, you're usually okay. Right, right. So yeah, I'm 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 really looking forward to to getting it on the tablet. Um, it's that's an it's another kind of new area for me. It's
2: not a I've never produced an an app before, so cool. it should be an interesting. I I have to say one question that Rob and I had. You know, we were talking before we were coming on, and we were just sort of talking about you know our experience with the game and different loot drops and the stores and all that kind of stuff. And and we both sort of scratched our heads and said, wait a minute, how how are we supposed to pay for this? Uh you know it is it is a free to play game and you have sort of uh sort of dual in game currencies you have pizza and gold and there is sort of exchangeability between them and they let you buy items and stuff and cosmetics like new character models for your for your figures but um I have to tell you like Rob and I both play the heck out of this game and we're like I I paid to, you know, initially to just sort of, as much as anything, just to have some money around for when inevitably you were going to ask me to spend some of it. And that was like a month and a half ago, and I haven't spent any of it yet. Now it's kind of a bad sign.
1: Did you join the um, the Cart Hunter Club? or? Not? I
2: did. I, I bought some package where I was part of the club for a month or two and then ended up with a bunch of pizza slices. And, and I can sort of see what I could spend them for. Like, I could buy juicy items. And if I perhaps if I was playing more multiplayer, I'd feel the need to do that. Um, but I'm just sort of curious whether or not you think you've got the balance of, of uh, sort of the financial side of this thing as tuned as the game is because the game is clearly pretty darn tuned at this point. Yeah, probably not. Um,
1: you know, because... Well, <laughs> what you just said is is kind of kind of a bad sign, I suppose for us um, yeah, I mean, I think we on the other hand we did deli- we deliberately um, chose to err a little on the side of being too generous um, and and part of that is because um, this is the first time I've made this kind of game, so I uh, wanted to make sure that i didn't there's no point in making a game that you know, makes a good amount of money for every player, but doesn't have anybody playing it. Um if you gave me a choice between that and the opposite of having a lot of players who don't spend much, i'd I definitely pick the the latter, um which is if we've heard at all, I think we're slightly on that side um, because you know uh, there's value to building up an audience even if you're not making a huge amount of money out of each player at this stage and And I guess also, there's a very healthy amount of scepticism out there about free-to-play models, particularly in the more hardcore gaming community. You know, I think um, there are a lot of sort of fairly exploitative free-to-play models that are are reasonably well accepted in the more sort of casual Facebook-y type arena, but which hardcore gamers are, you know, sort of spending, having played a lot more games and having spent a lot more time thinking about how these kind of models will operate, you know, are much more suspicious of. So we, I think we were, you know, A, we didn't want to actually rip people off, and B, we didn't want, we knew there was a big danger the game could be perceived as being, oh, another free-to-play model, I don't want to play that. So we, we tried very carefully to build a, a system that, would allow you know, I, I guess this maybe this is the bit that you're, you're saying we haven't succeeded at, but would allow people to spend money if they thought the game was worth it, but but wouldn't really require it.
0: Well, no, I I think that's well, just like to say like you know that's what we haven't succeeded at. I think the issue the way the way uh, Julian and I were sort of formulating it in our emails emails back and forth between before the show is that I I think a free to play game. It has to walk this line, right? Between, like, you have to be generous. You can't, like, instantly say, like, okay, kids, this is the part we have to pony up. Or you're just going to have to grind your way through this. I haven't felt disadvantaged really, from not having spent money on the game. But at the same time, like, I'm enjoying the game I'm playing so much. And I'm actually enjoying the way it's balanced. Just, you know, for free. So much that I'm not like moved to bust out my credit card and say I want those extra items. I'm like, no, I kind of enjoy sort of slugging along with uh, the commons and uh, and uh, uncommons. I think maybe different people have different um, ideas of what's fun there.
1: So I think it's actually okay for. I, I'm, I often have that feeling when I'm playing a free-to-play game, and what worries me is that, you know, even if it lets me play for free, that that, it, that it's being tuned so that I'm not really going to enjoy it if I don't play. Right. Um, so, and 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 I guess that that's the worrying thing too is you, is you never really know, like, what am I expected to do here? Am I gonna am I gonna ruin the game and make it too easy if I play, or if I don't pay, is the game going to be ridiculously hard and punishing? And that that's, but the, and I I guess the thing that complicates that is that you know tuning a game difficulty is always a very difficult thing because different players have different experiences. So perhaps I'm, I'm pretty sure you guys are probably in the upper percentile of play skill. So maybe it's okay that that, you know, the, the free game is reasonably well balanced for, for people like you and then maybe people who are having a tougher time of it uh, might feel a little more incentivized to join the club so that they and which you know gives them a few more items which makes makes the game a little easier essentially. But the other thing is that you know, uh, we would really like this to be a long-term kind of thing. Uh, we intend to keep running it for many years, assuming it picks up a big enough audience, which I think it hopefully it will. And, you know, we will release more content over time. And, you know, maybe when we release more single-player content, um, you know, there'll be some free stuff and some pay stuff, and, and people will if they enjoyed the first one, we'll maybe want to buy some additional content. And, you know, we're always going to be continuing to release more figures and uh, we intend to implement, you know, tournaments and other sort of multiplayer events that people might pay for and so on. So we might, I guess we might be able to sort of keep adding um, stuff that, could could actually generate us some money at some stage, well, <laughs> which is not to say we, we are making a reasonable amount of money out of the game. So right now we're, um, you know, it's it's not like we've launched it and nobody's paying for anything. So we're completely screwed. We <laughs> we haven't we haven't sort of we're not retiring as millionaires yet, but it's it's been okay, and and we're sort of trading off fairly large numbers, I guess, for at least for this sort of um, you know indie indie game. Um, status, and you know that's that's a reasonable trade-off against fairly, you know, not making a huge amount of money out of every
2: player. Right, and and I'm always surprised to see, uh, and I don't mean this in any disrespectful way, but you know, a, a lot of there are a lot of free to play multiplayer games that sort of come out on a regular basis, whether they're iPad based or not. And you know, I mean, I just looking, you know, before the show, I was playing a little bit, and there were I don't know a hundred people in the multiplayer lobby looking for games. That's pretty darn healthy, right? Yeah, that's- I think it is,
1: and and that's what I'm actually probably most happy about because multiplayer, of course, is always this kind of Sink or swim thing. Like if there's nobody there, nobody's going to play it. Um, and it you know the matchmaking doesn't work if there aren't enough people, and you know people get have to get matched against other people who are, have vastly different ratings, and they have to wait a long time for a game and so on. So that's that is something I'm really happy about, and really obviously really want to build on because multiplayer people keep coming back, and they're the people who a lot of the time will really help support the game in the long term. But the and the thing is that the game is a really fun multiplayer game. Um, it sounds like you might not have tried it yet. You've just been in the single player, and I I don't know if you like
2: multiplayer. Oh no, I've 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 played uh, I've played a fair amount of multiplayer, but mostly against my uh, nine year old son, who uh, while while being a, a reasonably competitive League of Legends player hasn't quite mastered uh, you know when to, when to cut his losses in uh, Card Hunter.
1: <laughs> okay. Yeah, I think I think it's really fun. Actually, I was just chatting with one of the other developers just before the show, and, and saying I need to get back in and play more multiplayer. Um, you know, both because it's fun and, and also just to stay in touch with with what's going on. But yeah, it's it's pretty healthy, and um, I think that's you know, uh, I was kicking myself for a lot of the development of, during the development of this project because we always used to have a. Uh, a rule at Irrational, which is we tried to never do a multiplayer and single-player game combined, because it's such an incredible nightmare to do two things. Like, it often ends up being more than twice as much work, because you have to worry about, you know, cross-balance issues between the two different, They're you know, essentially almost like two different games. And it's been, once again, it's been kind of a nightmare on this project, um, and I really wished we hadn't done it at many stages, but I think it's paying off now because, of course, a lot of people never convert from single-player to multiplayer. Right. But at the same time, the fact that we have this very extensive single-player thing, which isn't just kind of a tacked-on tutorial, you know, it's an actual real solid game Mm -hmm. in its own right, means that I think we bring in a lot of people who wouldn't play it at all if it was just a multiplayer game. You know, there are, as you say, there are a lot of these kind of deck-building, card-playing... Type games that um, have launched, you know, a lot of them fairly recently, and most of them are very, very focused, or if not in 100 multiplayer. And I think that's a, you know, really tricky job just to to build up a multiplayer audience. And um, most of them probably won't make it, honestly, because there are only so many multiplayer games that, you know, that can. I think that can be supported. Right.
2: Yeah, I think that's that's very true. I mean, we all only have so much time. Uh, and and you know we have so many things to do. Uh, so I mean, play n-
1: games are just a massive commitment. You know, it's you don't want to just dip into a multiplayer game because you, you've kind of you got to pick and pick, pick, or at least I do. I kind of just pick which ones I want to get good at. Right. And there's only usually, and then when I pick one, I usually stick with it for a very long time because you get invested in it, and you, you don't want to throw away all that expertise that you've earned.
0: Though sometimes I think that's actually part of the problem with multiplayer in general is that I think developers are always aware that they're developing for people who are ultimately going to choose for whatever reason to make this sort of one of their go-to multiplayer games. And there's only going to be one or two or three of those, you know, that someone is good at at a time. So you tend to like tune it for sort of a diehard audience, I think, where, you know, I think that like looking at the history of the RTS, you know, just from sort of my crap player perspective, I think that kind of hurt multiplayer a little bit because increasingly you had these games designed for, yeah, exactly. And it was not rewarding to have a casual interest in these games.
2: Yeah, well, I've put StarCraft in that category, right? I mean, they they as they become so competitive, they become really hard to stay up with. Yeah, because yeah, they build all their features around what the
1: super competitive people want. Yeah, and
2: that's a, uh, look, I
1: don't, I mean, we don't, it's not like we have some magic solution to that. We did a couple of things that I thought were interesting. Um, One, which I I think really helped bootstrap the multiplayer, one of of which was, um, and it was one of the nice things about, it was a a bit of a payoff from developing the single player game, actually, is we put in um, AI opponents for multiplayer. So... That allowed us to do a couple of things one is when you start playing multiplayer you are guaranteed to play against the ai so your first opponent isn't some you know 13 year old who's spent the last six months getting good at the game and has tanked their ratings so they can come in and crush newbies
2: (laughs) not that that's ever happened to any of us before no (laughs) No. um
1: (laughs) so that that allows us to kind of give you a nice introduction to the game, and also it it helped bootstrap the multiplayer game so when there weren't actually a lot of people in the lobby, um, we could actually guarantee you would get into a game in a in a fixed period of time so there's this little timer that counts down and you know says you won't have to wait more than this long to get a game and Of course, we couldn't find an opponent a human opponent in that time, we'd just match you up against an AI so that was really interesting because it did. It did help bootstrap the game, because when there were only 20 people in the lobby, a lot of them were actually ended up playing the AI most of the time. And But then, of course, it snowballed, and, and now, when you go in and check, most of the games are actually human versus human, which is obviously where we want it to be, ultimately, because, right. hey, it's multiplayer. It's not really supposed to be about playing the AI. But the other thing we did is... Um, you know there's a, a a little reward track in the lobby which basically shows you you know you get a prize for winning each multiplayer game and and right. get and some of them are sort of extra bonus prizes if you manage to string together a sequence of wins and so that incentivizes people to play multiplayer you know not just for the thrill of winning but also you know it's 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 kind of comparable to to single player in the sense that you get more stuff just by playing the game so I think both of those things were designed to just sort of give people reasons to play multiplayer other than just like hey if you get good at this game it's going to be a lot of
2: fun so looking looking back on the development, um, you know, you did spend a, a decent amount of time in beta. Um, you know, some things are easier to to get out of the beta test group than others. I imagine getting things like a big vigorous multiplayer community isn't something you can do all that well uh, upfront. Nor is the what will people pay for because you're not asking people to pay for stuff with real money. Um, you know, what what do you look back on and sort of wish you'd had more time to run with, or you feel pretty good about how where it's at? It's not a trick question. I'm just I'm always sort of curious where where stuff ended up on the cutting room floor that you look back on and, you know, are wistful about?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, I, I, in general, I'm I'm pretty happy with, with when we decided to launch. And, we, I mean, we ran a, a pretty long beta. I think it went for about six months. And interestingly, you know, one of the things you mentioned was you couldn't get data on what people would pay for. So we did actually do the, the experiment of having um, – uh, that you could actually pay real money during the beta. And then at, at the end of the beta, we reset the database and we credited back um, all the, you know, you got back all the virtual currency that you'd bought and spent during the beta. So we did actually get quite a bit of data on that. Um, we did get a reasonable amount of multiplayer play time. I mean, not not nearly as much as, as we have had post-launch, but a, but a reasonable amount of it. I think the two big problems are we have a very complicated metagame game. In, in the game, and and I've, I'm assuming that's a, a term that um, you know is reasonably familiar. You know, in the sen- in the magic sense of like, what are the best decks to construct and play? And I think
0: yeah.
1: even now, um, we don't really. It hasn't really settled out. Um, there are probably four. 400 cards, or so that players can use, and, and thousands of different items, some of which are very, very rare. So it, I, you know, I don't think anybody has a complete collection of stuff in the game, or anywhere near a complete collection of things that they might collect. So we we still don't really know what the metagame is exactly. It's still shifting around quite a bit, and we certainly have didn't know by the end of the beta. So we still have we have a couple of well, at least one, I think, fairly serious um, balance issue in the multiplayer game that we're going to need to address, and there are probably a whole bunch more lurking out there. So it would have been nice to have settled those down at the end of beta, because you know we don't really want to change cards or change rules once people have collected things. But I think we, you know, does a certain right. amount of that that we probably have to to do just for the sort of long term health of the game.
0: But at the same time, to not have a beta, to not have a, a metagame that's sort of completely established and nailed down at this point, that's kind of a success. Because I mean, if you look at you compare it to like games like League of Legends, where they're constantly sort of trying to throw little twists at the community. And then the community really quickly sort of figures out the new ways to compose around those new characters, whatever, uh, that it's, it's very hard to prevent a, me, a metagame from uh, becoming uh, like so hard and fast that, yeah, the game becomes rote. Uh, so if you it presumably
2: that, you're going to be adding new content, I assume, over time. Right. I mean, that's that, that it sort of goes without saying, but I guess it's worth asking Um and And when you start doing that, there's no way to test that really
1: right and i don't I don't think there's a huge need to pump a bunch of new content in immediately just because, as I you know like the metagame is still kind of evolving. For example, I just saw on the forums um, earlier this week people saying, "Oh, why isn't anyone playing Wall of Stone?" you know which is a um which is a card that you can use to block off." entirely squares you know like when you turn something into a into a stone square you can't see through it you can't move through it and it also can't be affected by any other spells so it's actually a uh you know it's one of those cards you first look at and it's like oh it doesn't do any damage so why would i use that but it's a it's actually obviously an incredibly powerful card and I, I think it's just because it's rare; it hasn't been seen very much, and people haven't sort of been really exploring it yet. And I, I don't know whether Wall of Stone is actually going to rise up and become, you know, one of the go-to cards in the game, or whether it's just that it, you know, um, maybe it's a sort of mid-level card, or who knows? We don't we don't really know yet. Like I think uh, these sort of meta-game explorations by players, are, uh, they're a little bit like um. You know, like an unsolved science... I mean, they are these huge optimization problems. It's a little bit like sort of folding protein projects or something. You know, you you need to have this huge crowdsourced effort to solve the problem. And even then, it takes them a while to figure it out because it's so incredibly complicated. So there's just no way that you can can design that ahead of time and get it right, And, and your beta audience... Just isn't going to be big enough to figure it out either. Like they, they maybe figure out a bunch of it, but they, they're just there's just not enough bodies to throw at it, to to really sort it out. So you know, you just kind of have to live with. That. I mean, even magic who presumably, you know, have some of the most experienced card designers in the world. I mean, the most experienced card designer in the world still, you know, they still get things wrong and they have to take cards out of circulation or limit their whatever. You know, they they don't have the luxury of rewriting the rules on them, but they don't always get it right either. Well,
2: yeah, I wouldn't wouldn't necessarily use them as the model because their current model is to, you know, completely invalidate all of your card purchases every nine months. Uh, you know, by rotating everything out of the standard format, so um, you know that uh, there are a lot of people who left Magic when that became the dominant way of playing because they started feeling taken advantage of, and like you said, I think you've erred on the opposite side, right? You no, know, we we're we're not feeling taken advantage of. We're worried you're not making enough money to keep the game alive.
1: <laughs> you want
2: me to take advantage of you more? Yeah. Well, you know enough that. It, enough that it sticks around right that's that's always the point
1: yeah i think as a player you should be worried if you feel like there's nothing in the game to pay for because then you should be worried about whether it's going to be there in three months time right so um yeah it's not it's not i think it's not it's not i think it's okay we're okay on that front i think we can probably do better for sure but you know we we're sort of still working on that stuff
0: you know taking a spell like Wall of Stone, just for a second, uh, because it, it puts me in the mind of something I really enjoy about Card Hunter, that makes it work for me in a way that other games like Over Time, Heroes of Might and Magic, and then uh, games that I really thought I would love, like Kings uh, Kings Bounty, they just ended up kind of bouncing off me. I, I, you know, every game like that has a spell, basically, like Wall of Stone, right? Those sort of terrain impedance uh, spells that you sort of drop, and Usually in most of these games, they're kind of useless because, well, the guy's just going to walk around, around the tile. It's rarely it's rarely a decisive maneuver, or anything close to a decisive maneuver. Something I really enjoy about Card Hunter that's keeping me coming back to that in a way that I eventually got tired of with um, King's Bounty is that the whole deck building side of things, that randomness of the draw, means that what my units can do is bounded, there's a limited number of possibilities there, but it's always kind of suspenseful as to what their abilities on the next turn are going to be, whereas I think if you take games like King's Bounty of Heroes of Magic, look, that guy's always going to move two, that guy's always going to move three, there's spells you can use to modify that, but it's all so clear and so predictable that a lot of times these battles feel like just sort of slugging matches in a way that Card Hunter never does. Yeah, it's the ups and downs. That's...
1: that. That's, that's... The, the surprises and disappointments is the way I look at it. So, you know, for example, we do that um, when we build monster decks as well. You know, and monster decks are kind of fixed decks. they obviously not put together the same way as the player decks. But we have a bunch of heuristics for how we build them. And one of the heuristics is there's always got to be one great card in there that the And there's always got to be one terrible card, and and when you when you hopefully when you as the player see see the monster draw the great card, you you know you're cursing the random number generator or the shuffler. And conversely, when they play the you know when they trip or fumble or whatever it is, you're you're happy to see that. So those are little moments of drama. And, and the fact that, you know, we can shuffle them up and, and, and put them into your deck means we can make those highs and lows much higher and much lower than they would be if you see if you get the same ability every turn. Right. But, but the other thing I thought was interesting about what you mentioned about Wall of Stone and, and, and sort of road bumps is that, you know, uh, I think a lot of people have kind of had the idea that, um, you know, magic's a cool game. Wouldn't it be nice to have... Um, terrain, you know, like a board as well. You know, in magic, you just kind of lay out your creatures, you know, in a, in a f- formless kind of blob in front of you. They don't have any position. And so there are a lot of, I think, uh, you know, card games now which have some sort of board or positional element. Um, and I think it's interesting, but, uh, we, we definitely, um, when we decided to, to, to make, to do that mix up, one of the things we said was, we have to really make sure that position is not just kind of a side effect. It's not just sort of a little feature of this game. It has to be, you know, the dominant thing about Card Hunter. Has to be position. That's essentially what the game's about. You know, it's it's the the stat, the the damage amounts, and and all of those sort of things, and are important. But it's got to be the case. Like range has to matter and relative position has to matter, and and those kind of you know that's why it can be very frustrating to be a dwarf warrior and to have a bunch of melee attacks and not to be able to close the range on
2: your enemy. Right, because you could think you can get kited all of, you can get kited all over the board. In that sense, it really does feel like a solid tactical game all by itself. It's just using very different mechanics. Right, and and it does it does matter, and, and that can be kind of frustrating.
1: Like you know, and I think um, some people come to the game, you know, kind of expecting it to be like, oh, I've got the obliterating bludgeon in my deck, I've drawn it, I'm going to win, you know, and then if they're playing against a, um, you know, in say multiplayer against an experienced multiplayer player who's got wings of War or um, you know uh, there's a whirlwind spell that throws everybody into random positions on the board and stuff like that and and they just you know end up with a handful of massive attacks that they can never use and find that very frustrating because you know they feel like I should be able to win this game and I'm, I'm not <laughs> um, right. but that's you know that's that's really... Unfortunately for people like that, that's kind of what we were going for. And so we, we want, we wanted movement to be absolutely key to the game. And I think at high level play and, and certainly, you know, to beat the AI in some of the more, in some of the more difficult, um, adventures, you kind of have, you do have to use movement very effectively and positioning. And, and we, um, you know, we, we actually retreated a little bit on, on facing used to be More important than the game in the game that it is now, but it's it's sort of I think we realised that that was maybe a step too far in terms of you know how how important that stuff was. Like you used to be able there's one stage in the in the game where you couldn't attack someone if you weren't facing towards them, Um, and that just turned out to be on the fiddly side of of um, caring about position.
0: But I like how it interfaces with, like, cone attacks, for instance, because then setting those up becomes a really interesting tactical puzzle in itself that uh, I really enjoy solving. You know, most of the time my flame attack doesn't quite accomplish what I set out, but it's really cool to be like, nope, my mage is going to be the last guy to move, and I'm going to try to arrange it so that everyone is standing in front of him. And, uh, you know, it's going to come down to what direction he's facing, I uh, gotta save, the, save that last movement, so he's 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 pointed toward them, and uh, you know everyone's in that in that in that cone.
1: Yeah, and that's and that's the kind of stuff that makes the boards really matter too. You know, like in Heroes of Mind and Magic, you know, the, the the boards are not always that important. You know, it's like okay, there may be a couple of terrain features in here, but it's basically my monsters versus your monsters. And I think in Card Hunter, you know, you, 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 you your battles can be really different depending on what boards. Like to the extent that some deck builds are just not that useful. You know, if you're playing in a board that has a lot of um, one width uh, corridors in it, cone attacks are not really that great because most of the time they they're, they're going to be so constrained that they don't you don't get to take advantage of their utility. Just you know, little things like that I think actually become very important and. Again, you know, we kind of felt like we're paying this price to build a a game that has actual miniatures and and, and positioning, you know, in terms of screen real estate. If nothing else, we, we paid a huge price for that. So we really, really need to take advantage of it and make it pay off.
2: Right. So what, do we, what should we be expecting next? I mean, we, we said that, you know, some new content would be coming. Um, most of the new content that I've seen so far has been, again, not to be disrespectful, but largely cosmetic. Like you're in the middle of the Halloween uh, the Halloween thing right now. And there are sort of these, I'm guessing, limited time versions of a lot of these items that just sort of have cool Halloween themes and things like that. Yeah, it is just a cosmetic. It, and and it's, it's not
1: because we... Uh, I guess lacked the imagination to create new things. <laughs> like we, um, we actually didn't, you know, from a balance point of view, we thought it would be unfair to sell, you know, the item you can only get for two weeks. That, you know, if you don't, if you didn't buy it, you're going to be kind of screwed now. Um, so yeah, those are just those are just skins. Um, it, it's it's interesting. I mean, we're working on a on our first set of single player content at the moment, um, which is going to introduce a bunch of new items, a bunch of new adventures, kind of all the stuff you'd expect. In the longer term, you know, we need to develop a sort of strategy for how we're going to proceed because one thing we, we're we not clear about yet is exactly how far up we're going to push the power levels in the game. When we sort of originally plotted out the game, we plotted it up to level 50, and right now you can only get up to level well, I think you can actually get your characters up to level twenty, but they're only up to level eighteen items in the game and level eighteen adventures. So we have a lot of room to grow, um, but we we have to be quite careful about that because uh, we don't know how the intru- introducing those super high power levels is actually going to impact multiplayer. I mean, I quite like multiplayer at the moment because it, um, you know, it has this power token system which limits the amount of um, powerful stuff you can take. Only, only Of all the items you equip, only a proportion of them can be the most powerful, which means that it's very deliberate that you have to use some sort of weaker, lower-level items in, in your multiplayer builds. And the same is true in single-player as well. So we, we want to be very careful about not pushing multiplayer into a place where... Um, you know, some of the, those less powerful lower-level items drop out of circulation and aren't any use anymore. And we also are a little worried about, um, you know, the very, very powerful cards that, that might be coming down the track, um, you know, how they're balanced and whether they come to dominate the game and, you know, bec- all the other cards recede in importance because there are these things that are so incredibly game-changing. But, um, you know, that said... Um, we want to, um, we'd ultimately, yeah, we want, we've we got a bunch of content that we already built, some some more powerful cards and stuff that we do want to introduce into the game. And then, of course, we've got a lot of sort of, I guess, you could call it almost like horizontal expansion that we could do um, in terms of different classes and races and stuff. And people are always kind of chatting on the forum about, oh, I'd love to see a whatever class or whatever race. And we do have a, like, we've sort of half plotted out a, a rogue class that would, would join to the three warrior wizard priests that are in the game at the moment, um, and that would be really fun. And another idea I kind of um, you know have had sitting around for a while that I think will be really fun is classes are quite easy to put together in Card Hunter because mostly there um, a class is, is a set of slots, so right. a warrior has three weapons and a shield and a helmet and a pair of boots and so on and so on and a wizard has two staffs and four arcane items and so on so um just like in role-playing games dnd for example we could make mixed classes or subclasses which could be interesting i think you know like a cross between a warrior and a wizard that had a mixture of those slots and obviously, if you start introducing too many of those, you kind of just end up blurring everything to the point where it's, you know, not really very interesting anymore. You don't want to have, you know, want to sort of allow people to build anything. But I think um, introducing different classes like that, that are sort of the combinations of the existing ones, could provide a lot of kind of cool um, variants to deck building. So uh yeah there's a lot of a lot of possible directions we could go in the other the other big thing that we're working on at the
2: moment is is more mu- structured multiplayer so um like tournaments or different formats or things like that yeah
1: yeah um so that that i think is really important again you know obviously event events i think bring 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 people back into the game but also um i think um Multiplayer meta games are more interesting if they keep shifting, and we're doing that a little bit at the moment because we keep rotating the multiplayer boards every couple of weeks. Um, but one of the things we kind of have in mind for tournaments is also to um, put special rules in place for each tournament. So, for example, um, you know this tournament this is an all elf tournament, so you've got to build um, a party with with elves. You know, and that, that allows people to kind of explore a part of the metagame space that they might not otherwise. You know, for example, if elves aren't really very powerful, I'm not saying now, but if they, you know, if that was the case, then that kind of tournament <coughs> can give people a reason to to make builds that they might not otherwise be making. Or you know, you've got to in this tournament, kind of. I don't know if you've seen some of the quests in the single player but they, you know, they're basically challenges. Like you've got to do this adventure but you only have one hit point, or one of the ones I like is you, you've got to do this adventure, and every item you equip has to have a drawback on it. Um, so <laughs> I haven't
2: done those yet. That's fun. Yeah,
1: so that's kind of fun because it makes you again, it makes you use items that you might not otherwise be considering, um, and that you know I think is um, keeps keeps the game fresh and keeps 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 challenging people and making making them think about the game instead of just settling into one build.
0: Well. You know, we have to wrap it up here, and I regret there's a lot of things actually I want to talk about with this game uh, that we just haven't gotten to yet. We haven't talked about, like, the strategy of it, uh, the tactics in too much detail. Uh, there's there's a lot of things I would love to revisit, and uh, Julian, I know you and I were kicking around, um, you know, once we get some multiplayer games going between us and a few other freelancers, maybe doing a show that just deep dives on so, sort of like being a better card hunter, uh, as it were. But uh, this has been a fantastic insight into the way the game was constructed, and it sounds like you have a ton of interesting uh, plans for it. I'm really I'm really excited to hear there will be possibly a rogue class to sort of join onto the other characters. I'm really fascinated by the uh, gameplay potential there.
1: Cool, yeah. We've been saving, saving a lot of um, ideas for that class, so we need to get it done at some stage. And... Um... Yeah, I'm sorry if I rambled on a little bit and <laughs>
2: took it a- off. Oh, no, 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 not at all. We haven't had a chance to talk since the game launched, so it's great to just sort really of get the get the whole picture.
1: And uh, certainly, I'd love to I'd love to talk about multiplayer at some stage. I think it's a fascinating. There is a, an interesting meta game evolving, so a lot of cool things to talk about there if you guys are interested
0: absolutely we'll uh there's there's a bunch of games we want to revisit toward the uh end of the year and the start of the next one and i think this is definitely uh, on the list uh so john thank you so much for joining us and uh you can play card hunter at cardhunter.com create an account there uh it's free as we said on on the show earlier perhaps too free for its own good who knows uh but you certainly will feel rewarded for your time uh so highly recommended. Uh, go to cardhunter.com and give it a shot. My thanks to John for uh, spending part of his morning with us and to Julian for spending his evening, uh, you know, coming on the show. No problem. It was fun. Thank you very much for having me on the show. It's been great. All right. This episode has been produced by Michael Hermes, and we will be back next week. Uh, Until then, good night. Good night. Bye, Pans.